Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Law and Revolution in Ireland, Law and Lawyers Before, During and After the Cromwellian Interregnum. This conference took place in the House of Lords on the 27th and 28th of November 2014. It was organised by Dr Coleman Dennehy in association with the Irish Legal History Society and generously supported by the Society, the Bank of Ireland, UCD Humanities Institute, University College London Department of History and UCD School of History and Archives. The event was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. This episode features a paper from Session 6 entitled Countering a Revolution with Law. The role of the Irish royalist elite in the law courts of the exiled Charles II, 1649 to 1660. The paper was given by Dr. John J. Cronin of University College Dublin. What I'll be talking mainly today is about how the court, Charles II, and some of his Irish courtiers attempted to use legal precedent to assert the claim to the right to govern. Basically, how does an exiled king use law and legal precedent? In this case, mainly legal precedent derived from prerogative courts and not common law courts to assert a claim to governance and a claim to be recognised as the rightful monarch of England, Scotland and Ireland. Mainly reading from a paper, apologise for that, but I shall, uh, I'll take my head up at some stages and look at you and say something. So I won't be completely antisocial while doing this. So in this paper, I shall look at how Charles II and his followers, including his Irish courtiers, sought to use legal precedent and procedure as a means to assert the Stuart dynasty's claim to the thrones of England, Scotland and Ireland during their exile in the 1650s. I shall likewise examine the roles played by Irish courtiers within these exiled legal bodies. Furthermore, the paper will look beyond the activities of these bodies to look at other instances when the exiled king and his Irish courtiers sought to assert a right to legal jurisdiction over persons from Britain and Ireland. It will examine how and when this was done and how such efforts were received on the continent. Let me start by pointing out that this exiled monarch often exercised jurisdiction over his own courtiers, with Charles II maintaining the right to settle disputes and regulate behaviour within his own household. This he could do because his position within the royal court, and I mean court in the sense of his household this time, met him to pater familias, allowing him to dispense justice to his courtiers. Courtiers were also willing to appeal to him to settle disputes among themselves. Early in the exile, in Chiquin, one of the um, royalist uh, exiles after a long and windy path to become a royalist, Edgequin uh, was worried about being dishonoured by the writings of a fellow exile, Lewis Dives, who seemed to question the former's commitment to royalism for some strange reason. Edgequin was unable to seek the usual legal redress of suing an order for libel, however, and he found that circumstances conspired to deny him the usual social redress of a duel as well. Basically, he uh, threatened a duel against Dives, and Dives said, no, you're right. Everything you say about what I've said about you is correct. Uh, nonetheless, they didn't do anything to uh, defend his reputation in public because Dives wasn't willing to, uh, wasn't too willing to put his uh, put his uh, retraction in print for various political reasons. In order to defend his reputation in the wider exiled royalist community, therefore, Inchiquin eventually appealed to his monarch to protect his reputation. This Charles II did, and after investigating Inchiquin's complaint, he acknowledged that this nobleman had been wronged by Dives. Interestingly, Dives had admitted to error nearly a year previously. This was 
1651, he admitted to the error. It was 1652 when Charles II exonerated Inchiquin, and had even offered to correct his error publicly, though it wasn't the most wholehearted uh, offer to do so. Inchiquin had rejected this course of action, however, insisting that Dives wrote right to Charles II and correct the record that way. In other words, basically what that sums up is that Inchiquin wanted the king to dispense justice and wanted the king to be seen to dispense justice on this regard, and he wanted the king to be seen to exonerate him. There were other cases where the king sat in judgment on his courtiers. One of the most notable saw Edward Hyde cleared by a royal council of a politically motivated charge of treason in early 1654. The starkest example comes from 1655, during Charles II's time in the electorate of Cologne. In that year, the exiled, courtier, the exiled court executed a courtier, one Henry Manning, for treason. Manning was initially arrested by courtiers after evidence of his espionage was found among his correspondence. He had been corresponding with Thurlow, uh, Oliver Cromwell's spymaster, basically. The evidence was then perused by the King's Council, and the accused was subsequently examined by certain councillors, including Charles II's Irish favourite, the Duke of Ormond, on the King's orders. During this, Manning was allowed to present the defence of his actions. Following this, the council deemed Manning to be guilty and sentenced him to death despite hearing pleas for mercy from a number of people. The sentence was then carried out by the exile royalists in a forest in Cologne. This was done with the collusion of local authorities who did nothing to prevent the execution from taking place. This sort of legal procedure and judgment was not a unique event during the Carolean exile. Charles II's proved Charles II proved more than capable of putting together ad hoc courts to examine and try particular issues within it. The the problem of duelling provides a good case study. Ad hoc courts were often employed to resolve issues that arose from from the many instances of this violent act act within the court's environs. Or, to put it another way, the problem of duelling provides a good case study. Ad hoc courts were often employed to resolve issues that arose from the many instances of this violent act within the court's environs. I think that's much clearer, isn't it? Notably, ad hoc, notably, ad hoc as they often were, these courts were still clearly based on pre-exile early Stuart models. Indeed, the measures taken by Charles II against duelling throughout his exile arguably represent both a significant and deliberate effort to maintain con- continuity between the exile court and its antebellum predecessor. Starting with the antebellum predecessors, James I issued a declaration against duelling in 1613. This king also established a court of chivalry about this time on the suggestion of Henry Howard, Earl of Northampton, who proposed that men of high social standing pass judgment on disputes over honour and reputation. The legal body that resulted from this was intended to prevent duelling by examining instances of this behaviour and punishing those who had caused a duel by offending another gentleman's honour. It didn't punish the actual act of duelling itself. Charles I, as part of his strenuous efforts to prevent duelling among his own courtiers, made extensive use of this court of chivalries in the 1630s, which Cust, among others, has written about this. It is clear that Charles II's exiled court drew heavily on these examples, making comparable efforts to preserve the peace among its courtiers. A 1658 declaration by Charles II, at a time when he was in the Spanish Netherlands, against duelling, was inspired both by the actions of his royal grandfather and the writing of other early Stuart figures who wished to put an end to duelling. The declaration spelled out the treatment that duelists could expect from the king, stating that duelists would face royal wrath lose all entitlement to employment in the royal service forever, and would be denied entry into the royal presence again. 
These measures clearly reflected early Stuart influence, as they drew upon earlier writings by Francis Bacon and the aforementioned Earl of Northampton. Both Bacon and Northampton had argued that Dulles would balk at the prospect of being removed from the font of royal honour and had suggested similar punishments for Dulles in 1613. They argued that there was no point punishing these people physically with imprisonment or even execution because if they were willing to fight and risk death, then executing them for dueling wouldn't be much of a punishment. But denying them access to the king, to the font of honour and to the patronage that came from that was seen as a punishment. The declaration, moreover threatened that the king would not seek to protect duellists from the wrath of local laws against duelling. Another clear sign that duellists risk losing royal favour. It is also another clear indicator that local authorities allowed Charles II de facto jurisdiction over his own courtiers on such matters. The November 1658 declaration likewise threatened to levy similar punishments against those who carry challenges between people and all persons who knew of a duel were ordered to report it to the king's privy council in exile. In order to publicise it amongst the courtiers, this declaration was read from the pulpit and by the King's gentleman usher in the present chamber. Basically, Charles II in exile organised a house into a palace and it had a public presence chamber where announcements of this sort were made. These threatened punishments were not empty threats. The punishment inflicted on an exiled Irish royalist duelist, Theobald Viscount Taft, for killing a Scottish exile, William Keat, in another duel earlier that year, demonstrates this. Taft was a favourite of Charles II. Yet, in the wake of the fatal duel, Charles II moved quickly to punish the Irish nobleman. He banished Taft from the royal presence within a matter of days, despite the offender begging the king for pardon in writing, and despite simultaneous appeals to his own patron, Ormond, for assistance in avoiding punishment. Banishment, it would seem, was a severe punishment for Taft. Indeed, the Viscount believed that an extended absence from the royal presence would ruin him, as he depended entirely upon the exile court for his subsistence. Furthermore, Taft claimed that this banishment would also lead people to cast aspersions upon his name. God forbid. After he learned of his fate, Taft wrote to Charles II both to condemn the severity of the punishment and to seek forgiveness again. He sought absolution on the grounds that his honour would have been damaged had he avoided what was forced upon him. These pleas fell on deaf ears at the time, however, and it took a while for Taft to get to, be, to work his way back into Charles II's good books. In these latter examples, then, the exile court drew upon the work of two early Stuart legal theorists when deciding upon the appropriate punishment for duelists. The reaction of the royal court to other duels demonstrates that it drew upon the thinking of the Earl of, Nantap- of, the Earl of Northampton when adjudicating on such clashes as well. Following a fight in 1659 between two other duellists, a Scot named Newburgh and an Englishman named Stanley, a council of the king's nobility sat in judgment on both men. The council, considering the case, divided on national lines. The Irish in the council sided with the Scottish and accused Stanley of giving the first offence, while the English blamed Newburgh. Now, this council did not actually meet to punish both duellists for fighting. Rather, it met to decide who had caused the duel. Point of division between the national factions in the council is enough to indicate that. Fighting a duel in the exile court, therefore, was not thought worthy of punishment. A somewhat surprising fact, given that the original fight broke out in this it's a surprising fact in this case anyway, given that the fact, given the fact that the original fight broke out in the royal presence and thus give offence to the king's person. Causing the duel by giving offence to a gentleman was worthy of punishment, however. The distinction is important as it shows that the exiled royal court attempted to dispense justice on questions of honour through a mechanism similar to the one used by its early Stuart predecessors. Specifically, this was an attempt to copy the Earl of Northampton's idea from 1613, namely to have men of high standing pass judgment on disputes over honour and reputation. 
This exiled council of nobility, therefore, was a relatively informal version of the court of chivalry, previously established by James I. Furthermore, this was not the only time that such a council of nobility met in exile. In 1647, Rupert of the Rhine, feeling dishonoured by some speeches made by Lord Digby, challenged the latter to a duel. After Charles II, then Prince of Wales, intervened to halt this duel, a council of nobility convened to decide on the satisfaction owed to the prince. The matter was resolved when Digby acknowledged that he had wronged the prince before the council. On the whole, the fact of being exiled seems to have had little impact on the king's ability to dispense justice within his own household. Even though the court was outside its traditional ter- territories, local authorities did not apparently object to Charles II taking responsibility for settling disputes amongst his own courtiers. References to examples of authorities in both Cologne and Spanish Netherlands leaving the court to look after its own affairs have already been made. This is not without significance, I would argue, at least in, a political, in, a political, uh, in the political field, as leaving Charles II to dispense justice to his own courtiers arguably amounted to an acknowledgement by foreign powers of the royal status of both this exiled king and his household during the exile. Now, that's fine, we've dealt with the king inside his household, but what about the king's efforts to dispense justice to his subjects beyond his households? And this is what I'm going to move on to now. In order to make the exiled crown a true dispenser of justice, however, it was necessary to seek to go beyond the court's own boundaries. Linked to the justice dispensing facet of any early modern monarch's role as pater familias was his theoretical position as pater patriae. The latter fatherly role constituted an enlargement of the former, with the former supposedly serving as a model for carrying out the latter. Furthermore, it was partly through filling the former role that monarchs claimed the right to dispense justice to their kingdoms. The Stuart dynasty had been quick to claim the latter role before, and the exiled Charles II was clearly interested in inserting this claim as well. I know I used the words latter and former there, but I just really couldn't resist it. Giving this and given the need to assert his claim to power in any way, it is unsurprising that Charles II made efforts to dispense justice to persons beyond his courtly royal household. It should be said that for the exiled royalists there was little theoretical problem in attempting this. They were quick to make the argument that sovereignty was vested in the person of the king, regardless of where he was. Uh, one notable example of this is John Bramall, who did it in the 1640s in a document known as the Serpent Salve. Okay. Consequently, they would have argued this monarch, exiled though he was from his kingdoms, still had every right to dispense justice to his subjects. We can point to a number of efforts to do exactly this during the 1650s. In May 1650, this king ordered an Irish royalist privateering agent in France, Luke Whittington, to restore goods taken in a privateering operation to two English merchants based in Rotterdam. They previously had been promised protection by the Crown from privateering activities. This The document containing this order, moreover, explicitly stated that this command was given in the second year of Charles II's reign, 1650 being the year in question here. It thus constituted a claim to governance. The dispensation of justice by the Crown in the privateering cases went beyond this relatively informal case. By the early early 1650s, a royalist admiralty court, under the jurisdiction of the Crown's Lord High Admiral, the Duke of York, was operating in Brittany and was adjudicating on privateering matters there. 
It was a typical early modern government institution, in part a finance gathering body and in part a justice dispensing body. Its main role was to judge whether goods captured by these ships, these privateering ships, could be considered as enemy contraband, and it then arranged for their division among the privateers, the Crown, and other interested parties. The rules governing how this was done was made, how this was done were made within the Royal Court itself. This Admiralty's court functions, moreover, were not confined to Brittany. Appointments of officers to this court were made in 1652, which stated that they had jurisdiction in Picardy, Normandy, Ostend, Newport, and, I quote, in all ports in league and amity with His Majesty. Among the officials appointed was the, uh, uh, John Bramall, who was mentioned in Andrew's paper about uh, Clotworthy and Wentworth, so on and so forth. So the exiled crown was, in short, using the Irish elite supplied privateers, and most of the privateers were Irish, and Irish officials both as a reason and as a means to recreate a semi-executive and semi-judicial institution. Still, when it came to being the font of justice for those subjects they were outside, that were outside his household, Charles II met difficulties in matching theory to practice. The exiled court could, and the exiled court royal household could not easily dispense justice outside its own boundaries. Frequently, it could only act as a suitor seeking justice for certain persons from its host states. We have already seen how this king received a petition from a subject regarding a prize taken by royalist privateers in mid-1650. This was the petition which Luke Whittington was ordered to enforce. The king's order regarding this, while ostensibly directed to the to a royalist agent, Luke Whittington, was also meant for the local authorities, however, as it was written in French. The king simply could not completely rely on his own agent to regulate his Irish privateers, but had to rely on the cooperation of local officials to do so as well. During the Spanish alliance, which ran from 1656 to 1660, more or less, um, this reliance on local authorities reoccurred. When a Captain Byrne, who had somehow displeased the Stuarts, not clear how, was arrested in 1659, O'Neill reported that efforts were being made to persuade the Spanish to send him to the galleys. In other words, the Stuart court arrested him, but it was the Spanish who were going to punish him. Byrne was not a courtier, so the Spanish weren't going to allow him authority, or weren't going to allow them authority to adjudicate on it themselves. Yet, in certain circumstances, the exiled royalists could get around this reliance on local authorities when dealing with people beyond its own boundaries. Once again, when dealing with people outside of the royal household. Once again, through the agency of persons such as its Irish elite, the, the Crown could still interfere in issues in which it would previously have used its legal prerogatives to do so. The salient example comes from the publishing sphere. April 1653 saw Ormond in contact with Major General Edward Massey, then resident in the United Provinces, the Dutch Republic, on a number of topics. The topics included the publication of a book on Charles II's, Charles II's actions in Scotland in 1650 and 1651. Massey was a supporter both of the work and its author. Charles II, on the other hand, had some doubts on how this work would represent both him and his cause. Lacking the traditional legal recourse, however, the King found he needed to rely on Ormond's intervention with Massey. And then Massey would be to ensure that he, he was not libelled or misrepresented in the text. Ormond duly wrote to this Scottish grandee, this Scottish elite personage, and persuaded him to try and have the book's printing halted. Massey's attempt to do this came too late, however, but he did succeed in having offending passages removed. 
In short, Charles II was able to censor a book using informal means. Clearly, the Crown subjects were sometimes willing to accept judgment at Crown and to act upon it, even when there was no law court requiring them to do so. Persons such as Ormond, however, were necessary to transmit this judgment and bring moral pressure to bear on those involved. Nonetheless, limited though it was, this informal intervention still managed to serve as a basic regulatory system. So, to sum up, the exiled king and his royal household asserted the Stuart claim to political power and sovereignty, at, uh, political power and sovereignty, at least in part through creating royal courts in exile to decide on legal and administrative issues between the king's own courtiers and also between other persons from the Stuarts' traditional territories. While some of these courts were more ad hoc than others, all were based on early Stuart precedent to some extent, and all sought to assert the traditional royal right to dispense justice to crown subjects. The noticeable attempts to follow early Stuart precedent as far as possible while trying to dispense justice was, in all, in all probability, also designed to advance this claim to power and sovereignty. By using early Stuart models for his courts, the exiled Stuart king probably sought to create a sense of continuity with his own royal antecedents. These antecedents, for the most part, were recognised as legitimate monarchs. Charles II, by following their examples, was simply emphasising that he was their heir. Thank you. Thank you.